And uh, please uh, turn back in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 9, which was page 1150 of the Church Bibles, 1150. And hopefully inside your service sheets as well is an outline just to guide you a bit as we look at that passage together. Well, uh, summer is here. We're halfway through the year. At last, a real summer is upon us. And it's a magnificent thing. But one of the things about summer is that as the weather warms up and as things perhaps for some of us wind down a little and we have a bit more time to enjoy with friends and family, as hopefully we will this afternoon as a church family at the picnic, that it's easy for the focus we've had for the year to sort of fade into the background. And if you are a regular here, you will know that we as a church family have given ourselves a very specific focus for 2009 under the banner of 1 plus 1 equals 2000, uh, an evangelistic endeavour where we are aiming to see each one of us reach out and bring one person to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to see another thousand people become followers of Jesus gathering with us here on a Sunday. That's been our goal for the year and uh, early on in the year we had a, a big launch for that and there was a lot of energy behind it and there's been all sorts of events and initiatives along the way that have given us chances to uh, deliberately be part of that. However, if you're anything like me, it's easy as the year goes on to have the sort of the enthusiasm and the focus of that start to fade. And so what the next few weeks are about is to try and refocus our hearts and our lives on this goal that we've set ourselves this year. And so some time ago, uh, as we were putting together this series on uh, 1 Corinthians, this letter that we've been looking at since Easter, we added one extra passage, or I added one extra passage to the ones that we've been looking at. We've made our way through to the end of chapter 4 and then all of a sudden today we leap to chapter 9. Don't worry, we will come back to the other chapters uh, later in the year. But uh, as I was putting it together and we were thinking about this time of refocusing that we will be in for the next couple of weeks, I thought, well, there's 1 Corinthians 9, There's a passage on evangelism. I'm familiar with the passage. All the pieces seem to fit. Problem solved. On to the next task. And so that was done uh, some months ago. And then when I opened up the passage this week, I did see that, yes, it is about evangelism and it is appropriate for us to look at, but it does a lot more than that. Or it did for me anyway this week. This passage is for me, I think, anyway, in my approach and my passion for evangelism, a total sea change. Uh, That's what's occurred for me this week and I suspect it won't only challenge me personally but I think it will challenge the whole way we approach evangelism, approach reaching out with the love and message of the Lord Jesus uh, as a church family. Now there may be many here today who, who will look at this passage and as we explore it together will say, yes I know those things, great, got that covered. And if that's you, great. Well I hope at the very least it's an encouragement, a confirmation of the way you approach evangelism. But I suspect for many of us, myself included, this passage has the power to bring a real change uh, to our passion and our approach uh, to winning people for Christ. And so that's my prayer this morning, that God will change our hearts and our lives as we look at his word together. So I'm going to pray that very thing now and ask God to work powerfully among us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have sung, you are the God who reigns. And we do pray, as we sung earlier, that you would awake sleepy hearts if we are sleepy uh, when it comes to your purposes in this world. Father, we pray that by your word and through your spirit you would awaken us 
uh, to be the beautiful feet that we have sung of that speak good news to this world. Uh, give us a heart for that and give us the courage uh, to make good on, uh, on plans that we may make. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, yeah, as I said, please have the passage open. We're, we're just looking at five verses and essentially what these five verses do is they give us Paul's own approach, the Apostle Paul's approach to sharing the gospel with an unbelieving world. And as we read of his example, as we have in, in these recent weeks looking at this letter, it's not just for our information. It's not even just for interest's sake. What did Paul do? We read these words and we see his example because we're meant to follow his example. He calls on us in chapter 4 and he calls on the church in Corinth to imitate him as he follows Christ. And so as his example uh, is outlined for us, he's really only going to say three simple things. He's going to tell us three things about the way he does it. He's going to tell us who he is, he's going to tell us what he does and then he's going to tell us how he does it. Three very simple things but things that can bring real change if we listen with faith. So let's look at each of them in turn. Firstly, who Paul is. If you were to uh, ask Paul, which would be a difficult thing to do because he lived a long time before us, but if you were to ask Paul for his strategy on evangelism, you know, give me your tips, your, your top ten tips, how do you do it? What he would do is he'd first take you back a step and he'd say, if you want to know how I go about relating to an unbelieving world, the first thing you need to know is who I am and who you are in Christ. Have a look at verse 19. Paul's identity has been changed forever because of Christ and him crucified. This is how he describes who he is. He says, I am free. I belong to no man. That's who I am. Who are you as a Christian? You are a free man or a free woman, totally free because of the cross. You are in fact the freest person on this planet. In verse 20 Paul says, I am more free than any Jew who, who is under the law, a law they can't possibly keep. Verse 21, I am more free than the nations, the Gentiles, people like you and I who, who don't even have a law, who are without God's word, adrift in life with no bearing no hope. I'm more free than people like that. Verse 22, I am more free than the weak man, the one who is dependent on others for significance, for security, the one who longs for something or to be someone that they are not. Paul says, I am more free than that. The Christian man or woman who lives life shaped by the cross of Christ fits into none of these foundational human categories. We are wholly new people, free people, free from sin, free from God's judgement, free and needing no man and no thing. Because if you remember a few weeks ago, have a look at chapter 3 verse 21, you will see how free you are. This is what Paul says, do you want to know how free I am? All is mine. The world, life, death, the present, the future, all is yours if you are a Christian. You are completely free. You are a free man, says Paul, but you see what he says in verse 21? I'm not without law. While I am totally free, I'm not adrift in life, I'm not directionless. His life is controlled by the most powerful force this world has ever seen. He calls that force in verse 21 Christ's law. And all the way through his letters, that law is quite simple. It is the law of love. He is compelled by Christ's love for him on the cross and he is compelled to love 
likewise. You see, in Paul's freedom, there's no uncertainty as to what he's about. He knows exactly what he's about. He is driven and bound by the law of Christ. A law summed up for us in Galatians 6 as this, carry each other's burdens and in doing so you will fulfil the law of Christ. The law the Christian is bound by is the law of love. And so that's Paul's identity. That's who he is. Who is he? He is a lover. And so what does a man do when he is totally free? Well, do you see it there in verse 19? I make myself a slave to everyone. Paul is a lover who has it all. Completely free, complete rights, and yet he says here, I lay them all down so that I might serve others. You see what true freedom is as far as the Bible is concerned? True freedom is other person-centred love. Christian, you are free. So what does a lover do? Well, that's Paul's second point, what he does. He loves. And the way he expresses his love, his, his service of all, is, is very clear in our passage. He, he says it again and again, five times in case we miss it. He wins people. That's how he loves Verse 19, to win as many as possible. Verse 20, to win the Jews. Again, verse 20, to win those under the law. Verse 21, to win those not having the law. And once more, in case we've missed it, verse 22, to win the weak. Paul's love is expressed in his desire to win or literally gain friends. There's a remarkable irony here, isn't there? Here you see that the wonderful equation of the Christian life, Christian freedom... Lose rights equals gain friends. Now we hear this, this desire to gain friends, to win people uh, and we could easily miss the depth of what Paul is calling us to here. Because the, the, the whole concept of friendship is a bit of a throwaway term, isn't it, in the 21st century? To us it can mean only a very loose acquaintance, a, a vague affiliation. In the world of uh, the World Wide Web, uh, the internet, uh, with social networks like Facebook, Your friends are those people who you never see and perhaps don't even want to see. But Paul's idea of friendship is much, much deeper. Firstly, there is who he wants to befriend. Everyone. The Jews, the Greeks, the weak, you name it. He seeks to win their friendship. Second, there is is what he wants to win from them. He's not playing small here. He wants to win big. He wants to win their time and their trust, their heart. And third, there is why he wants to win that friendship. It's because he loves them. Paul's approach to friendship doesn't start with, I'll become friends and over time we'll grow to love each other. No, it's the other way around. He starts with love and he befriends. He is a lover like his saviour. And so out of this love for everyone, he doesn't just want to win their acquaintance, he wants to win their very life. Did you notice a subtle shift in Paul's language as he's gone along, as he says what he does in this world? Five times he said, I want to win them, I want to win them, I want to win them. He goes on and on. And then in verse 22 he changes it. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. And it hits you. 
or at least it hit me this week. Paul is not mucking around in this life. He loves everyone. He walks around Corinth or Philippi or Rome or Ephesus or Colossae or wherever he might be and he sees people whom he loves, people he knows are in desperate need of rescue. He seeks to save some and he's not kidding around when you see what he's trying to save them from. He says it clearest, I think, in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, where he says, speaking of Jesus, he says, we have now been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? That's what he's trying to save them from. Paul serves all in any way he can because he knows God's wrath is coming. And he loves those he sees around him and he knows they don't know that wrath is coming and he's not okay with that. And so what does he do? What's his life about? It's about rescuing those who are facing God's judgement. As that picture was being painted by these verses in my mind this week, a a scene from uh, the famous book The Catcher in the Rye came to me. The the main character in The Catcher in the Rye, Holden Caulfield, has this recurring dream throughout the story. This dream of being literally a catcher in the rye, standing in a field trying to catch children who are about to fall off the edge. And this is what he says. Anyway, I keep picturing all these little kids playing some game in the big field of rye. Thousands of little kids. And nobody's around. Nobody big, I mean, except me. And I'm standing on the edge of some crazy cliff and what I have to do, I have to catch everybody if they start to go over the cliff. I mean, if they're running around and they don't look where they're going, I have to come out from somewhere and catch them. That's all I do all day. I'd just be the catcher in the rye. I know it's crazy, but that's the only thing I really want to be. It does sound crazy, doesn't it? And so does Paul's approach here. Paul says, that's what I want to do all day. All my life, in any possible way, I seek to save some Because he knows, as Jesus has says himself in in John 3, that there is only two ways to live this life. Belief in the Son which leads to life or refusing to believe in the Son which leads to the mighty and infinite and just anger of God resting on that person. And Paul's not okay with that. And so the question we must ask ourselves this morning, which I've been asking myself all week, is do I really believe that? Do I really believe that that wrath is coming? Do I believe that the gospel of Christ can actually save people from that? Or perhaps has my gospel become a little tame and domesticated over time like so often the Western Christian gospel does? Our gospel becomes no more than some sort of strategy to help people with their felt needs. The gospel's good news because it'll help you with loneliness. The gospel's good news because it'll help with self-esteem or improve your relationships. Truth is the gospel does help with all of those things and every aspect of our lives, such is its power. But even if the gospel had nothing to say on those things, no bearing whatsoever on them, it would still be incredibly good news because the message of the cross rescues people from the wrath to come. And whatever help I may feel I need, whatever power I feel I need for my felt needs, it pales into its insignificance to the need I have on that last day for a saviour. A day that Revelation 6 tells me it will be so bad for those who do not have a saviour they will beg the rocks to fall on their head. The picture of judgement in the Bible is vivid and serious. 
It's hard to talk about. It's hard to talk about right now. The judgment of hell is real and terrible and avoidable. It is a place, the Bible says, of hopelessness and tears. And Paul is not okay with that. Not okay that as he walks around Corinth, he sees people he loves who do not know that day is coming. Because nothing and nobody in our culture will tell them that. Ours is a culture that majors on the minors, that that makes little things the ultimate thing. Ours is a culture satiated with stuff such that the certain judgment of God is not seen. But Paul says, when you know the gospel, when you know the gospel of Christ crucified, that it took the Son of God to die on a tree, you know things are serious and it's got to grip us like it does Paul. He cannot help but go to all lengths to see some saved. And he knows in the message of the cross he has the very power to do just that. And so he devotes himself to winning friends. I was thinking about that this week and I was reminded that as Finna started school this year, in the playground at Nethergreen Infants is what they call the buddy bench. It's this little bench in the corner of the playground and if you're playing at lunchtime and you run out of friends to play with, you go sit on the buddy bench and eventually a buddy comes along and you've got someone to play with for the rest of lunch. It's a great idea. Let me say as a Christian, you live on the buddy bench. That's what Paul is saying to us. And what's remarkable, I think, about this passage is that we know that and we might feel the need to live life on the buddy bench, but now he shows us his three ways how he goes about it. And they're so helpful. Three things to do while living on the buddy bench. Firstly, he says he knows those he seeks to win. That's step number one. Know those you seek to win. The impression of him in these verses is of a man who who knows a great deal about those he's trying to reach, the things that would offend them, their priorities, the way they think, the Jews and the Greeks. He knows they think differently. In the same way that he is committed to knowing Christ and him crucified, he's committed to knowing those for whom Christ died. And that for me this week has been sea change number one. I don't think I'd do that. I know the gospel inside out. Spent four years at Bible college learning the truth of it, the joy of it, and I've seen the power of it. I love it and I love to know it better, but when it comes to those I'm seeking to win, my knowledge of them is paper thin. Names, addresses, surface stuff. Don't know them like Paul knew the Jews and the Greeks, those who would have come into his tent-making business day in, day out. One of the things I had to do at Bible College over the four years that I was there is work my way through these two books, Calvin's Institutes. A real page turner, I could uh, recommend them. Uh, But uh, every year at at the end of the year I had to sign a little thing saying I'd read the required amount for that year. Even at the end of my first year I got married. I took Calvin's Institutes part one on my honeymoon. Not a great move, let me tell you, but... uh, after working my way through 1,800 pages essentially telling me what the gospel is, there it was in sentence one, what Paul is saying here. This is what Calvin says. He says, Nearly all knowledge we possess, that is to say true and sound knowledge, worth knowing, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of men. Now, as I reread that this week, I thought, I am committed to the first and casual about the second. 
I suspect we think we know those around us because we think they're just like us. But our knowledge of them is surface stuff, isn't it? I mean, if we landed in a cross-cultural mission in a foreign country, we'd know from the get-go that we would have to get to know the surroundings and the people and their culture and their, their food and their language, you name it. We'd have to know all of that. Truth is, every Christian is a cross-cultural missionary. And so we need to start asking, not just do we know the gospel, but do we know those we are trying to win with that gospel? What are they like? Do we know their, more than just their names? Do we know their values, their fears, the, the gods they worship, the questions they ask? Do we know these things? The law of Christ is clear. Love others as we love ourselves. So let me ask you, which of us does not want to be known? Which of us doesn't want to be understood and listened to and engaged with? I mean, that's a fundamental of real human relationships, isn't it? Especially those formed by those who follow the Lord Jesus. So there it is, step one, know those you seek to win. And what Paul says is that knowledge is going to help you with step two, which is removing anything that might hinder the gospel being heard. In the chapters that have led up to our passage, Paul has been dealing with the Corinthians having trouble with the way he goes about evangelism. Everything about it seems wrong to them. For starters, he refused payment for his preaching. Now in that culture, if you were a rhetorician, if you came in and gave great wise speeches, you you expected to be paid for it. Not Paul. And then there was the food he was willing to eat, food sacrificed to idols. He was a chameleon. A changeling. Verse 22 says it. He says, all things to all men. That's who I am. Now I think we hear that phrase and we think no backbone, sort of a two-faced character. No, says Paul. I couldn't be any firmer in my resolve. I have just one message for all people in all contexts but I am prepared to be incredibly flexible when it comes to how I approach them with that message and flexible with my rights. And so with the Jews, I am like a Jew. With the Greeks, I am like a Greek. Paul aims to knock down any barriers that might block the gospel of the grace shown in Christ from being heard. And that for me is sea change number two. I think most often when I I think about obstacles to the gospel, I'm thinking about the obstacles at an unbeliever's end, their sin, their indifference to the gospel, those sort of things. But Paul says, you know what, the gospel, by the power of the Spirit, will knock those things down in an instant. And so he concerns himself more with the obstacles at his end. As I thought about that this week, it occurred to me that there are at least two, and I'm sure more, types of obstacles that we as Christians put in the way of the gospel of grace. Firstly, there's what I'm going to call grace deterrence. Obstacles we put up when we expect unbelievers to act like believers. Our gospel can easily become a thinly veiled moralism. We aim to win people by changing their behaviour, not their hearts. I reckon we do this in so many different ways. Whether it's refusing uh, to associate with work colleagues because of their drink culture or condemning a friend because of a sinful relationship or having nothing to do with a work colleague because of his work ethic. Truth is all of these issues stem from the big problem their desperate need for God's grace. That's what we want to talk to them about. On a bigger scale, another deterrent we put in the way of grace's 
the dangerous game we play as Christians in speaking on political issues. We do indeed have a voice and we must use it in a public square to speak for the unrepresented, to to speak for the powerless and the weak, to promote life, not death, and do it with passion. But we need to be prepared to be far less concerned with issues that are to do with our rights and preferences on things that don't really matter. There may be times when holding our counsel is better than shouting about it. I'll give you an example that I've come across twice in my time here thus far and it happens every Christmas. Every Christmas when there's a special Christmas stamps put out, rather than Christian images in recent years, there's been Santa and his reindeer and things like that. And all of a sudden the the Christian world gets up in arms about this. How dare they? I think we need to ask ourselves when issues like this come up, is this really the main game? When people hear the word Christian, we want them to think that these are the people who are obsessed about Christ and him crucified, not stamps. The message we need people to hear from our voice in the public square is that a sinful world has been rescued by a mighty rescuer who has taken God's wrath on himself. And right now we couldn't care less if you put the tooth fairy on the stamp because I have something far more important that I want to talk to you about. So there is grace deterrence. And secondly, I think there is also grace deniers, obstacles we put up when we behave like unbelievers when we deny the gospel by our life. There's so many different ways that we could do that, whether it's as customers or perhaps as parents in schools with endless promotion for our own child's rights. We must guard ourselves if these are putting obstacles to the grace of God up. Paul knows that these are the last days and so nothing in what he says or does needs to deter people or deny the truth of the gospel. And thirdly and finally, his final approach, not only to know people, not only to get rid of obstacles, but thirdly to serve those he seeks to win. His job in making friends, his goal in making friends is to find more and more people that he's going to serve. It occurred to me this week, where does a servant work? If you're the servant of a great master somewhere, surely you go to their house and you work there. That's where they are and so you serve them there. And surely it's the same with us. We are to serve them where they live. And that for me is sea change number three. How do we win many? How do we save some? We serve them by doing what servants do. We go to where they are and we serve them there. Again, this is a big challenge, isn't it? There's a great temptation for us as Christians to retreat into what Vaughan Roberts calls the Christian rabbit warren, where we see the big wide world out there is scary and out to get us and our children and so we burrow down into our cosy Christian subculture and evangelism for us becomes the occasional foray up into the big world above where we try to persuade people to come down to our meeting and some do. And they peer in and they hear our strange music and they listen to our strange jargon and they observe our strange fashions and they leave. Truth is, if we love them, if we seek to be their servant, we'd come out of the rabbit warren and into the world. Jesus' great commission to us is clear. Go and make disciples. Go 
But I suspect most of the time we ask them to come. We need to learn to go and be with them and like them such that the only thing that offends them or causes them discomfort is the gospel itself. Now for me this is a massive challenge to the way I approach evangelism and I suspect it might be for us as a church as well. Paul's strategy is simple. He identifies with those he seeks to win. He enters their world and so they are at ease. They are comfortable. And I think this is really hard for us because our whole psyche is built around comfort. That's what we want. Especially when we're doing something really uncomfortable like sharing our faith. We want to at least be on home turf. But in following Christ there is no promise of comfort nor even is the idea of it something we should aspire to. We must make our default move going, not inviting to come. We need to get over our lack of comfort and be more concerned with theirs. And just as we finish, as an aside, don't underestimate just how uncomfortable the Christian community is for an unbeliever. Don't underestimate the culture shock involved. I suspect we think we're not that different. We look the same, we sound the same, but the differences matter. It's a bit like when we as a family first came to Sheffield about two and a half years ago, I thought there wouldn't be any culture shock. It's, it's, we speak the same language, we drive on the same side of the road, everything's pretty much the same, it'll be fine. But those first two weeks, I think we, were, we moved around like zombies, totally adrift. I, I remember going to the Tesco Express down on Eckersall Road and I had no idea what the lady was saying to me. She was saying something and it was sort of English, but a sort of a northern Yorkshire English. And then all of a sudden I realised that all my, all my shopping was just sitting in a pile at the end. That She'd put it all through the scanner. Where was the person who puts it in the bags? <laughs> and then there is the language we use. I have slowly over two and a half years mainly learnt not to use the word pants when referring to my trousers. (laughs) And there are other words that I won't use here that have caused me trouble. The differences matter. And let me tell you, when you're on the disconcerted end of it, it is hard. Well, take that and multiply it by a great number and that's the discomfort that an unbeliever may feel here. And so if we love them and if we want to win them, we must go. And as we go, remember the stakes, salvation, and fuel your passion for evangelism on the thought that Paul concludes our passage with. Verse 23, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. If 1 plus 1 equals 2,000 has lost its focus for you, use this summer to re-light that passion for it. Paul would look around a church like ours and he'd see a thousand people over a Sunday who share the blessings of the gospel with him and he'd love it. He'd rejoice in that. And then he'd say, let's go win the rest that we may save some, that they too may share in the blessing of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your great love for us you did not stand far off but you met us in your Son and brought us home. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who is God with us. Father, help us to live lives that follow his example. Help us to go and make disciples so that they too may share in the blessings of the gospel. Give us courage and commitment to do this and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, we come to our final hymn, a hymn that picks up what we have been focusing on today. Go forth and tell. Let's stand together and encourage each other to do just that.